0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to go through verses 13 through 20. And as I mentioned, um, this is the only complete sermon of Jesus that we have called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We believe that this basic message is the same sermon or message that in, you know, a variety of different order. When Jesus went from village to village and town to town and city to city, this is basically the message of the kingdom that He wanted to bring and to deliver. So we pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in verse 13. Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and He says, You, believers, you, my disciples, you, the church, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So I wanted to um, begin with our first lesson here. Believers, Jesus is saying, are like salt because they are valuable, and they have a uh, preserving influence within the world. In Jesus' day, salt was a tremendously valuable commodity. In fact, I don't know if you've heard this before, but literally the Roman soldiers who were conscripted into the Roman army were sometimes paid in salt, For a year's labor, you would be given a giant sack of salt, which was extremely valuable. By the way, if salt is valuable and you are the salt of the earth, it means that in the eyes of God, you are extremely valuable. They would pay the Roman soldiers in salt. In fact, that's where our English word salary comes from. It comes from the word salt. And by the way, it gave, that's 2,000 years ago, gave rise to the phrase we still use in English, if you've ever heard somebody say, that man is worth his salt. So that's where it comes from. Salt was used, so why was it such a commodity? Why was it so valuable? Because they didn't have refrigerators 2,000 years ago. So fine, you have animals and you, you have some meat. How are you going to, you know, preserve the meat so it doesn't start rotting and decaying very quickly? So what they would do is they would rub salt into the meat, and the salt, because God made it, literally stings and kills and destroys bacteria so that it cannot grow, and the meat can be, it can last. You can, it can be preserved. Jesus says, you believers are the salt of the earth. And in the meat, as it were, of human beings all around the world, and seven billion of them, uh, there is a rottenness that is happening to humanity, a decaying uh, process from sin, selfishness, pride, ego, all of the sins of the world and the flesh and the devil, and it's putrefying. And so God has taken the church, believers, to every nation, language, kindred, and tribe, and He has rubbed salt into the world that they might be saved, that they might be preserved, that they might have the opportunity to hear the gospel and become born again. So, salt preserves. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, you the believers. And look, this is not known or appreciated by the world. By the media, they they don't they look at us in many ways as an annoyance, uh, you know, somebody to be picked on or whatever. They have no idea how preserving, how valuable that the church is around the world. But Jesus lets us know. The other thing about salt is that salt adds flavor to food. It doesn't just have a practical, um, you know, uh, ability to preserve meat. Uh, God gave it pleasure as well. It gives zest to life. And may I also then say that those who genuinely know and walk with the living God and have the Holy Spirit inside of them, believers bring flavor to the world in which we live. They bring a zest. Now, I'm a native, you know, San Diegan. I was born in San Diego, raised in San Diego, called me to be in San Diego, and therefore, you know, I, I, my favorite food is Mexican food. I just got to say, that's it. I got to go, have Mexican food. And so when I go to a Mexican restaurant and all my favorite places or whatever, the thing that I love, the best about a good Mexican restaurant is right at the very beginning, of the ta- they bring to the table a bag of what? Chips. chips. Bless the chips, Lord. In every Mexican restaurant, wherever they may be in the world. And then to the chips, my first instinct is I grab the Salt. My wife grabs my wrist. It already has salt, I know, but not enough, you know. And I go and I shake it on there. I want the flavor. It's good. Oh, but salt also needs to keep its purity uh, for contaminated salt. Now, here was a big problem. If salt, man, that's how it's going to preserve our food. In the future, well, it's, it's in sacks, and somebody, they tried, they would steal. It's a commodity. They would try to steal it. They would slash the bag. Uh, salt would drip out, or they would try to, you know, bring it somewhere, and some salt fall on the ground, or if it got knocked over, and it's in the dirt, and you're trying to get the pure salt back into the sack, but if it gets too far, there's a certain point where the salt is mingled with the filth and the germs and the contamination of the dirt, And you do not, that salt that gets mixed in with the dirt, you don't want back in the salt, because would you not agree, you don't want dirty salt smeared into your steak. Hallelujah. (laughs) So when a sack of salt got contaminated and it got dirt and germs and filth or whatever in it, now what do we do with it? Well, we can't use it for meat, to preserve meat, because nobody's going to want to eat it, yuck. So what do we do with it? It still had a purpose. Guess what you do with contaminated salt? In those days, of course, they didn't have asphalt and they didn't have cement and the roads that we, modern roads we have today. They had paths through the bush and the brush. Well, to create those paths, you know, you wanted, once you had made them, which through great effort, uh, you don't want all the trees and weeds and little things growing up. So they would take the contaminated salt and pour that on the paths. Why? Because the salt will kill all the weeds and keep the path clear and plain. But notice, contaminated salt, its only purpose when it's filthy or contaminated is literally trampled under the foot of men. So what Jesus is saying is, if you are, you are salt, but if you live as a child of God, a compromised life, a life of worldliness, if you let the filth And the germs of sin and compromise and contamination come into your life. He can still use you, but you're going to get trampled on and judged, as it were, by the feet of men. So remain and retain your saltiness, your flavor, and your ability to preserve, all right? Okay, let's move on to the next one, beginning in verse 14. So after saying you are the salt of the earth, I love this one, Jesus says, and you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So I like this. You, Jesus says, are the light of the world which is a great compliment to the believers, but it's also a great responsibility. This term of being the light of the world was was a phrase that was used by the Jewish leaders to talk about certain eminent rabbis. They would say, Yes, we have many teachers and many rabbis, but this one is so gifted and so eloquent and and so blessed of God. Rabbi so and so is a lamp of the universe. Or they would say of another influential rabbi that even the rabbis looked up to him, they would say, He is the light of the world, or they are the lights of the world. That's how that phrase was used. How incredibly amazing that now Jesus takes this high and lofty statement wrapped around a few rabbis, and he brings and pulls down those lofty words, and he talks now to a bunch of common, scruffy, fishermen laborers, tax collectors, he says now, no, you who love me, who know me, who know my true identity, who walk filled with the Spirit and the glory of God, you are now the light of the world. You are the lamps of the universe. Don't hide your light, but let your light so shine that men see your deeds and give glory to my Father in heaven. I love this. Jesus never said, become salt, He did not say, become the light of the world. He simply said, if you are mine and you love me and you believe in me, you are salt. You are the light of the world. Therefore, we are either fulfilling or failing to fulfill our divine calling in the world at large. And so salt is needed in the earth both to keep the rotting, decaying, Uh, that's happening all around the world. We live in an hour where there is a desperate need for salty, purifying, flavorful Christianity. Can I hear an amen on that? And great light is needed because our world, if you have noticed, is descending into greater and greater darkness. And if our Christianity has darkness, or if we're hiding it, or embarrassed by our light, or hiding it under a bushel, that's not going to help the world around us. This poor world is stumbling in the darkness. They have no vision, they have ideas, but they have no idea how to get there. So I want you to hear this, hear this, and I speak to your spirit. Everyone who is hearing my voice right now, I don't just speak to your body or to your brain or even to your soul. I speak to your spirit. You are the light of the world. And let your light shine. Don't let it burn dimly because dim already is the world's light. They need a light that shines that is unafraid, that is unashamed of the power and the glory of the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He has a kingdom. His kingdom's on its way. And let us get in line and follow Him all the way to the glorious kingdom to come. Now, it's interesting that this, uh, if you note here, the word word Father— Jesus says so do your good deeds so let your light shine that men see your good deeds and give glory to your father in heaven underline that word father it's the first time the word father is used in the new testament so we we don't just believe in god there are many gods and people that follow various gods and there are realities behind them demons the doctrines of demons but we serve the God, the God above all other gods, the name that is above every other name and every other principality and power and might and dominion and name that is named. And we bring glory, and not only is He God the Creator, He is a Father, and we are to live in such a way that we have a relationship and an intimacy and a closeness and a fellowship and a friendship with God who is our Father. Do it in such a way that they will become jealous of the relationship. They will see the power of God and the glory of God that is upon you. And that's why I'm so excited to come back fresh from South Africa with all of its most recent uh, trials and tribulations and problems and all the rest of it. And then for a farmer to say, we the believers need to call on the name of the Lord. And when over a million people gathered together, even the government was shaking going, oh my gosh, There is a unity among them that now they speak with authority. Their voice is being heard all the way up to the powers that be in South Africa. May that be true of the body of Christ in the United States of America. May they hear there are people who love God, follow God, live for God, are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so verses 17 and 18. It says, he goes on to say, now do not think Because somebody might be beginning to think now that he's abrogating or, you know, setting aside the law of Moses. Jesus answers that question if they were thinking it. Do not think that I came to destroy or to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, underline that. How long will the law last? How long, will the, how long will the law be a reflection of what is righteous and holy and true and the character of God and the holiness of God till heaven and earth pass away? Not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever uh, does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to just put this little uh, next life lesson. Jesus is the very fulfillment of the law of God. By his own teaching, Jesus did not bring some new teaching or some new law to his people. He came to fulfill and complete the law that was already given. And the law of God is unalterable and remains in force until the end of time, until heaven and earth pass away. I'm sure you've all heard of the Ten Commandments, all right? But did you know that when you read through the law, as you read it uh, there in the first five books of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, there's a lot more laws than just the ten. The ten are the big ones, they're the major ones. But if you add up all, every one, the big and the little of the laws, do you know how many there are in the Old Testament? 613. Write that number down. So, look, all you have to do to go to heaven is keep all 613 commandments your whole life and never sin, then you get to go into heaven. Hallelujah. How would you like to keep those 613 reminders in your pocket? All right? Literally, the 613 All, you know, it's like the Ten Commandments are ten silos, and all the 613 find their way to one of the ten. They reflect perfectly the righteousness of God. And Jesus Christ fulfilled God's law in every area of his life. He fulfilled it starting with his birth because he was, quote, born or made under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Every prescribed ritual for a Jewish boy was performed over him by his parents. And he lived all of the Ten Commandments and all of the 613 commandments his whole life. He never broke one, not even once. Not only did he never break one of the laws of God, he never even thought wrong of the laws of God. He is the only one who actually lived the law, fulfilled the law, and then ultimately fulfilled it when he died on the cross. Because the law condemns us. It shows us what sin is and that we are sinners. And then Jesus died as the holy, righteous, eternal, law-fulfilling Son of God. He died in our place because the law says if you, the soul that sins... The punishment is death. But because God loved us and He didn't want us to die and perish and be eternally separated, Jesus, who is holy and righteous and law-fulfilling, took our place and paid the price. He died for us and then He rose again. And all of the righteousness of the law is now Literally personified in the personality of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are married, not so much to the law, but we are now married as the bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He works His character, His righteousness, which is reflected in the law all through our lives as we follow Him. Amen? So um, I want to show you a picture because when Jesus said not one jot of the law will not be fulfilled and not one tittle, one one little mark. So I put in your notes here, the the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is that letter right there. It's called a yod. Everybody say yod. 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 A yod is basically an apostrophe in, in our writing. It's the tiniest, smallest letter. And Jesus said, not even an apostrophe will be left unfulfilled. And then beyond that, the the tittle is just, see that little kind of a dot almost, just a tiny little dash over the top of the yod. He said not even that will be unfulfilled. The tiniest little mark, like like the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T in English, it will all be fulfilled. Now, this is not in uh, the Bible, but there is a tradition among the Jewish people about Solomon. You know that Every year, the the king was required, uh, or if not every year, at the beginning of his reign, he was to write the laws of God with his own hand in Hebrew. So when Solomon was king, he had to write a copy of the law And if if you made a mistake, then, you know, you had to start over again. Well, the the Jewish people say that when Solomon was writing the law, he came to this one part. God said to the Jewish kings, he said, the three things I don't want Jewish kings to be like the Gentile kings. Don't multiply these three things. What are they? Number one, don't multiply gold to take your, you know, look how much gold we have. Number two, don't multiply horses. The reason for that is, you know, it, horses in that day were like tanks in modern warfare. Don't take pride in your, how big your army is. And the third thing that God said is don't multiply what? Wives. Well, do you know that it said that the, the Jewish rabbis that when Solomon was doing that, he quoted that, don't multiply wives. But he left out one tiny little mark. And by leaving out that tiny little mark, it changed the meaning of the passage so that then the passage read, uh, do not multiply gold, do not multiply horses, but it's okay to multiply wives. Because with leaving out one little mark, it changed the meaning and that if you multiply wives, then God will be with you and bless you or whatever, and that Solomon did that. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but the reality is he did multiply all those things and he got in big trouble. How many married men do we have in here? How many would agree one is more than enough? Hallelujah, I don't need a thousand. (laughs) Hallelujah, one is enough for us all. How many of you wives want a thousand husbands too? I mean, come on. One, one, and making the two one. So here's what I want to make for you. Does this have personal application? Yes. God delights Even in the smallest mark of His Word, even in the tiniest little dot, God delights in using the small. God takes pleasure in using that which is weak or even insignificant to demonstrate His power and glory. And literally, the change of destiny can happen in the tiniest little mark. So that represents every one of you and me. We might be a tiny mark in the history of humanity, but without you and without your relationship with God, the universe is missing and history is missing. Your destiny is important. For God, all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So if you are brought low or esteemed as insignificant in stature in this world, you can trust your life is immeasurably important to God. It has tremendous significance. Okay, let's close with verses 19 and 20 this morning. It says in verse 19 again, "'Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so,' shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice they don't lose their ability to be in heaven, but they have lost something. They'll be the least. But whoever does and teaches them all the righteousness, holiness, character of God's law, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven." So we come to the last life lesson here, where may we all realize our desperate need for all that Jesus offers us in salvation. Jesus raises the bar. He says that the scribes and Pharisees who spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all they do is try to live according to the law. And then what if you're a fisherman? I got to go to work. I'm a laborer. I'm a carpenter. I don't have time to do all that spiritual stuff. But Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed the guise that that's all they do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, uh, that would be very, very discouraging. And what it it really, ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount brings us to is, I can't do it. Even if my heart wants to and and my best effort and desire, I cannot fulfill the law to the requirements that God has. Therefore, the whole point of the sermon is to cry out for a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer, a one that will give us by His amazing grace, salvation, and transform us from the inside to the outside into the character that brings pleasure to the heart of our Father in heaven. Amen? So… Uh, the concept of heavier and lighter commandments was common, a common theme among the rabbis of Jesus' time. For example, you know, the 613 commands, some are lighter, you know, and smaller, if you will, and some are bigger, heavier. Um, so for instance, a lighter command would be, I don't know if you knew this is in the law of God. But it it actually says if you come across in nature uh, a mother bird and she's struggling to feed her little ones, uh, then you are to help her feed the little birds that are out within nature. I love that. God cares about the littlest things. And a heavier command would be honor your father and mother. Jesus is saying that there are lighter and heavier commands, and there are also therefore lighter commands. And heavier people in the kingdom of God, there will be lightweights, as it were. They're in heaven, they're in the kingdom, but they're light. And there are those that will bring heaviness. In fact, the word for Hebrew for glory is the heaviness of the presence of the glory of God. Think of Belshazzar in Daniel chapter seven, verse twenty-five. If you want to write down a cross-reference, God said to this pagan, you know, or this king Belshazzar. He said, you have been weighed in the balances of heaven and you have been found wanting. What that means is you, have no, you are light. You don't even measure on the scale. You are light and therefore no entrance. So Jesus shocks his disciples when he goes, you've got to raise the bar all the way here. And what he would ultimately be telling and teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount is, you're going to need me to do for you and in you and through you what you could never do by yourselves. It's all about him. It's all about relationship. It's all about then surrendering and yielding my life to the presence and the power of the Spirit of Christ that dwells in me. So in closing, let's read Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Let's read this out loud. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That says it perfectly. It's all about our hope in Christ Jesus in relationship with him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.